Hello, NCA podcast listeners. During the remainder of July and the month of August, we will be replaying some of our most popular podcasts from the year. This podcast originally dropped on August 5th, 2021 with guest John James. As you will hear, John is the author of Operational Vitality, a source book for practitioners, which is available for purchase at ncea.org backslash store. Please listen along as John discusses operational vitality and the sustainability of Catholic schools. And don't forget, starting in September, NCA's podcast will be visiting Catholic school classrooms from across the country. Each week, we will welcome Catholic educators to have conversations about teaching in Catholic schools. We will be discussing teaching strategies, tips and tricks, lesson ideas, and so much more. We hope you will start joining us in September and be sure to subscribe and tell a friend. Welcome to the NCA podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today, our guest is Dr. John James from St. Louis University, and John is here to discuss with us his book, the first book in a series called the Monograph Series on the NCA National Standards, and the, um, John's going to talk about operational vitality. And this book is wonderful, and I'm going to urge all of you to look at it and buy it, because I'm telling you, um, it is really helpful. I think finance chairs, I think CFOs of dioceses, others need to, to use it. Sometimes people have too much knowledge, sometimes they don't have enough, and I think this book kind of evens out that, that playing field. So thank you for joining us, John. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, Kathy. Well, I'm glad to have you. Even though you're a Cardinals fan, I'm willing to put that aside for now. So, <laughs> so John, could you tell our audience about yourself? Um, sure. Uh, well, I guess uh, first and foremost, I'm the youngest of 10 kids, uh, which means I'm probably from a Catholic family, which I, which I am. I uh, grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, attended Catholic schools all the way through, uh, Holy Cross grade school, Creighton prep. Uh, went down to Rice University and was not thinking about education. Um, I was working at Baylor College of Medicine and decided, well, maybe I want to try this education thing and just fell in love with it. So I started teaching at Straight Jesuit, um, helped open up Scutt Catholic High School in Omaha, uh, became the first lay principal at West Point CC, uh, West Point Central Catholic in uh, West Point, Nebraska, and then president of the St. Albert Catholic School System, which is in the Omaha metropolitan area. And then about 19 years ago, I uh, got recruited to St. Louis University to direct the Institute for Catholic Education. So now I get to train administrators um, throughout the whole central southern United States in, uh, in being Catholic school leaders. So I feel like I've uh, had a pretty charmed life. Yeah, it sounds like a great life. And it's an interesting thing to come from Nebraska to Texas to St. Louis. So <laughs> absolutely. It, that, that's a good thing. But the Catholic world is a small world in many respects. And so we're very glad that you're with us to share your knowledge. Um, John, when I've, I've read, I, I just told John, I'll tell our listeners that I've read the book twice now. Um, with two different lens. One time I just read it, and then the second time to prepare for this podcast. And um, I have to tell you that Appendix C, which I know I'm going to the back of the book, but my grandma used to read books sometimes from the back forward, so I think I did that. Um, But Appendix C is like a wow to me, because I think it's so helpful and could be so helpful to so many schools. What were you thinking when you put Appendix C in there? And could you describe how you think schools could use it with their work? 
I'm sure, Kathy, that's a, that's a great uh, question. And I guess in, in deference to the readers, Appendix C has to do with all the different discounts that, uh, that schools operate uh, from. Um, and I guess I want to just take a step back and say, uh, you know, as a context piece, uh, you and I have been around in Catholic education for quite some time. And I think maybe some of the younger people don't realize what a monumental change has happened in the last uh, 20 years. I, I kind of liken it to a, uh, a King David phenomenon. Um, that we were so geared up in 2004 to kind of celebrate 200 years of Catholic education, maybe we weren't paying close attention to the operational vitality aspects of schools. And then around 2004, a lot of things kind of converged, uh, school closures, the whole um, scandals with the church and the whole bit. And I think that caused NCA and Catholic education uh, across the country to really take a hard look at operational vitality. Uh, and I do remember at the time there was a big push to start understanding basic financial metrics like cost per student. Yes. I think what we've missed, though, is the revenue per student. Um, a lot of times people might simplistically say, oh, well, if our tuition is such and such and if we have 200 students, then our revenue must be why. Um, well, that's just simply not the case because there's a lot of things that are intervening variables. So some of the discounts that, that Catholic schools um, do, and we can talk about each one of these and the merits of either having them or not having them in your, your school, uh, certainly the multi-child discounts. This has long been a hallmark of Catholic education um, because like the family I came from, youngest of 10 kids, um, you, you kind of want to give a break to those parents. Um, the flip side of that, though, is not all families are created equally. I remember when I had four kids, my four kids in, in uh, Holy Redeemer Parish, uh, there were three families with four kids. Um, there was myself, who was a junior professor, and my wife was staying home with the kids, and we certainly needed that discount. Uh, and then there were two other individuals. One literally was a brain surgeon, uh, and another one was a high-ranking executive for Anheuser-Busch. So the, the assumption behind the multi-child discount is that all families with, with numerous kids need a tremendous discount, and that is not necessarily the case. Um, there are some families that might have one child in the school, and maybe it's mom working two jobs to, to desperately rub the dimes together to, to keep their child in Catholic schools. And so we need to make sure that the discounts uh, are, are representative of distributive justice uh, for the Catholic school. And I guess from a school standpoint, apart from just the individual justice standpoint, it can wreak havoc with the school budget if there's a sudden change in the, uh, the number of multi-child discounts. So if, uh, if you don't have a lot of multi-child discounts, then you know, the relationship between the number of students and tuition is, is pretty close. Um, but once you start having lots of larger families, it can cause huge havoc in the budget and can catch you by surprise. So um, Appendix C just kind of walks the reader through an awareness of what two similarly situated schools might see uh, as they dig into uh, multi-child discounts. But of course, multi-child discounts is just one of the many discounts that are done. Um, there's certainly the in-parish discounts. Uh, and again, each one of these, I'm not speaking necessarily positively or negatively for them. I'm just thinking uh, schools need to know what they're doing, why they're doing it, and does it make sense for their school in their particular context. Um, so another hallmark of Catholic schools is the in-parish discount. So, you know, maybe people who belong to the parish have a cheaper rate than those outside. Um, the assumption behind this, again, long time ago, is that parishioners are participating in, uh, in the life of the parish and are coming to church on Sunday and are contributing 
Um, so again, that's the overarching assumption. Does that assumption make sense? Does it make sense in your particular school to have that differentiation? Um, an another one, which actually I am going to go on record as saying I'm a huge fan of, is uh, tuition remission for faculty. Um, it's been an embarrassment for Catholic schools in some time where we have these high-quality Catholic schools and our own faculty can't pay the tuition to have their own kids in the school. That, that's a scandal. Uh, and so I'm, I'm happy to say that our most recent research indicates that about 70% of dioceses report that they have some form of faculty remission uh, for, their, for their faculty, for the students. Um, another type of uh, diminishment maybe of the revenue that one gets is uncollected tuition. Um, in many cases, this is a backdoor way of giving assistance to families. You know, a family signs up for tuition and they get into difficulties and can't make the payment, which is fine, but it needs to be monitored regularly. Um, I know there are some schools that are not attentive to that and they just roll the uncollected tuition forward every year, every year, every year. And the financials look like you've got those assets there. But in reality, uh, when you get uncollected tuition that are five, 10 years old, um, that it just needs to be written off. That's, that's not revenue. Uh, and then, of course, the discounting of tuition. Um, I had an article in Momentum about five years ago about are we as smart as the airlines. It does make sense sometimes when you want to fill your classroom and you've got people that can't pay the full freight uh, to maybe make a deal, uh, just like Southwest Airlines. But again, this has to be as a result of a very serious conversation uh, with your governance structure of your school, everybody understands what the objectives are, what they're doing, and accounting for all the dollars. So that, in a long sense, is uh, Appendix C just really kind of points at that multi-child discounts, which I think many Catholic schools have had and many Catholics still do have. Uh, and it raises the question, is this the right thing for our parish school at this point in time? And quite possibly not. Uh, so that's why I think it, maybe it was a big eye-opener for you. Um, and especially for people, how could a guy who's the youngest of 10 kids and has his own four kids say this? Um, but ultimately, we want uh, Catholic schools to be accessible for as many people as possible. And if we're giving discounts to people who don't need it, that probably means that there are people who do need it that are not getting it. Right. And I, 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 the biggest thing was for me was, was your line that track the revenue per student. That's the biggest eye opener. And that was the wow for me because I don't think I looked at it that way. Um, and I, I think schools need to look at it that way. It, it really does matter. Revenue gets overlooked a lot. We're Catholic, we look at expenses first, but revenue is, is the key. What is the money we're bringing in? So do you have a magic, and I know what the book says, but I want to know, if, you know what your thoughts on, the, what percentage should churches be, be contributing to their parish schools? Because it varies from 0% in some parts of the world to um, parishes you know, supporting the school at 60%. That's the highest I've heard, and I've heard that in the last month. So do you think there's a right number? Like I said, I know what your book says. But um, do, you, do you think it should be around 17, 16% or do you think it should be a little bit higher or lower? Or does it matter, just like you said in, the, in your scenarios with parents, does it matter where the parish is at? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I guess uh, um, not that I'm trying to avoid the, the question or whatever, but, uh, but I think there's a no one size fits all type proposition. I mean, that's the beauty of Catholic schools is it's a multi variegated system. And to have one principle that applies in all situations is just 
contrary to the way that the church really operates and, and contrary, I think, to best practice. But I do want to put, again, some, some context piece in place. Um, as a church and Catholic schools have shifted uh, over the last 50 years, and I make this point in the book, from a community-funded initiative to a parent-funded initiative. I'm just going to share a couple of anecdotal pieces uh, that didn't appear in the book but, but came out in other research. So um, we're all familiar with 1965, that peak year of Catholic education, and then by 1975, the Catholic bishops published a book, Where Are the 6.8 Million? So the, the Catholic bishops nationally figured out, hey, something's going on in Catholic schools between 1965 and 1975. Um, actually, I'm proud to say the Archdiocese of St. Louis figured that out in about 1970. They commissioned a study with uh, St. Louis University in Notre Dame to investigate what was driving the decline within that five-year period. And there was a phrase from that report that just jumped out at me because at the time, again, I had four kids in Catholic schools and I was paying the tuition. Um, the statement was, the loss of enrollment is not due to tuition because parents pay only 25% of the costs. So that just hit me over, uh, hit me over the head like a lead balloon. I'm going, wow, I wish tuition was covering only 25%. So that's just one little anecdotal uh, point from the Archdiocese of St. Louis in 1970. Um, you know, in, in the so 1990s... 50, it, 50 it years ago, up. it was about 25%. Right, exactly. So we, we've seen it go from that to uh, 52% in the 1990s and now up to about 70% in 2018. So the point being is we have had this gargantuan shift from a community-funded initiative to a parent-funded uh, initiative. And so I think your question um, gets at the heart of that, is what role should the parish be? What role should the parents be? And I guess on that one, I, I would just say, as a general principle, everyone has a role to play, uh, to have skin in the game in accordance with one's ability. So if you're in a very, very affluent area where parents can afford the full freight of the tuition, uh, I say pay a very high percentage and, and maybe even collect a little more for, for additional distributive justice, not only in your own parish, but throughout the diocese. Um, then, of course, we have nativity model schools where um, we're serving high poverty, high need families, and it just makes no sense for tuition to be uh, a large percentage of that. So obviously the gap needs to be filled in someplace. And if you're talking a parish school, um, that's going to be the parish. Um, there are rural parish schools where the school is the main, absolute, central mission of the, of the church. And it makes sense that the parish giving towards that should be quite a bit higher. Uh, and then you've got maybe uh, suburban parishes that have multiple ministries, lots of things going on. Um, so maybe it should be less. Um, but, but I think if we take a look at the data, and again, this is, this is in the book, the shift from 2004 to 2019, um, we asked some questions of superintendents regarding the minimum and maximum a parish can pay to their Catholic schools and the minimum maximum a parish is to pay. So one is, is uh, open-ended, what, what they're allowed to. The other one is uh, more prescriptive. Um, and we see in, in what, what they can pay has been narrowed quite a bit uh, between 12.5% and 34.9% in, uh, in 2019. Um, what they are to pay, which is descriptive, um, has shifted up a little bit, actually, 15% uh, to, to 31%. And I think it recognizes the diversity of Catholic schools out there. This podcast is brought to you by Canva. 
the visual collaboration platform empowering the world to design. Visit canva.com to get started today. I, I think the most important finding of this recent study, though, gets at that distributive justice. So if we, if we take a look at what the superintendents have said in terms of policy, um, between 2004 and the present, policies requiring financial support even from non-school parishes, it has increased from 33% of the diocese reporting this to 48.4%. So I think as a church, we're recognizing this ought not be a primarily parent-funded initiative. Everybody has skin in the game, and I think certainly parishes have a significant role to play in this one, uh, depending upon their ability. Now again, the, the devil's in the details in terms of the numbers. I also mentioned in there that um, the contribution of parishes to um, the schools has been fairly stable in the last 10 years, 9 to 12% range, and that's uh, stayed fairly stable. Um, what's lost in that is that's a percentage of the parish revenue. So if the parish is not growing as an operation at the same rate of the school, that 9 to 12% will not translate to 9 to 12% of the school income. It's going to be a smaller percentage. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, uh, Kathy, but the bottom line is the devil's in the details. It depends. Uh, it depends on context and uh, an ability to pay and in, in line with uh, Catholic social teaching. I, 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 yes, you did answer my question. I think it's really important to, to think about that though for a minute as church. Um, yes. The Catholic colleges and Catholic schools, elementary and high school have shown us across the country that when um, parents are paying the brunch, that's when schools close. Because exactly. um, in some communities, it's simply not sustainable for parents to pay for 80% of the school. Um, it, it just doesn't uh, work that very well. Um, they, they don't have the money. And then the percentage that the church donates of the school budget is often very different compared to the percentage of the church budget. And, and people need to be aware of that, too, when they're looking at it. Yeah, there, there is a snapping point. Uh, there was some research that myself and Karen Tickey and some others here in the Archdiocese did a number of years ago that found the breaking point is right around 7% of median household income. Uh, when parents are paying tuition above 7% of median household income, that's when the snapping point starts to happen. So again, that's going to be different from locale to locale, and it's going to be different from, from situation to situation. But the most important thing is for school leaders, for school board members, for everybody to understand their finances and to make judicious decisions based on that data. Right, and that's very important. Um, the other thing um, I, I'd like to mention is um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church and School in Carmel, Indiana, because what you suggested is that you share, it's, it's an affluent area, probably the most affluent area in, in Indiana. And the parish couldn't couldn't take all the children that wanted to come to school there. There simply wasn't room, and they were coming from another part of the of the city um, slash another city over, and they they literally built a school for another parish. They, wow! They, because they said, you know, we can't take all of you. So you are a starting, struggling parish with a lot of young families. You have children. You desire Catholic education, and so they worked with them and contributed greatly to the building of that school. And I think that that's um, 
I think that's an important example that hasn't been talked about enough, and I'm sure there are others where one parish has helped another. And um, I, I would like to hear more of those stories because that's when we're showing our Catholicity. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that one. That, that's the difference between are we running just a collection of private schools in a fee-for-service type operation, or are we church? And I guess that's an encouraging piece that I want to show from the most recent data. So Tim Dwyer, wonderful man, uh, God rest his soul, um, did that research back in 2004. And again, just to underline this again, only 33.3% of the diocese reported that they had policies regarding financial support from non-school parishes. That number has risen to 48.4%. So I think the church is recognizing, and this is, this is in canon law, right? Everybody has a responsibility to support Catholic education uh, to their ability. And it doesn't stop at the parish walls. It doesn't stop at the parish boundaries because we know that parish boundaries nowadays are very fluid. People go wherever they want. So it makes sense that the church should make a commitment to provide Catholic education for everybody within the diocese and not let the funding stop at the parish boundaries. Now, that can be a challenge for you know some people who view my church as my parish. Um, but we're a universal church. You know, we, on, on Sunday when we receive the Eucharist, it's not stamped with the name of our parish, right? It's the mystical body of Christ, which is universal. Um, so I agree with you. That's an exciting development, and we need to watch that carefully um, because I think that's us being church. Right. Well, they're doing very well, and in fact, um, both schools are blue ribbon, so it has worked out well. Um, I wonder if you have thought about... Um, the bankruptcy process that um, many dioceses are engaged in right now have been and maybe in the future will be engaged in. Do you think that's going to impact um, Catholic schools? And if so, how? Yeah, um, sadly, I, I think it, it has and, uh, and it, it will. Um, you know, gosh, we're, we're into um, probably about 20 years awareness of, of this scandal going all the way back to Boston and then even to the present with uh, McCarrick. Um, being charged. Um, it, it's been devastating on the lives of individuals, on, on the victims, on their families. Um, it, it's damaged the credibility of the church. It's cost us lots and lots of money in terms of payments. I think it's been estimated about $4 billion. Uh, and that obviously has a ripple effect then on the services that the, the church can, can offer. I think we've also seen a little bit of a change here in the last 10 years, probably you know, due in large part to the to the church's response. Now, in deference to the church, though, people like to think of the Catholic Church as one monolithic entity. It isn't. It's a collection of individual churches that have vastly dis disparate, you know, uh, accounting systems and, and systems of managing things and, and the whole bit. And I don't mean to be dismissing the church's responsibility, but I think there's a desire that once this broke, the church should open up some magic book in Rome and have all the data on everything. Um, and, and that's just not possible. I, I guess the best analogy I can think of is um, tracking down how many people are, are immunized right now by COVID worldwide. Well, you're talking about India, you're talking about Africa, you're talking about the United States, Australia, that, that things are done and collected and administered locally. And, and that's a bit of a challenge. Um, so, so I think there's been a huge... Um, that, that's been a huge problem for the church, and we're 20 years into it. Interestingly enough, the early early aspect, Charles Zeke, who, uh, who wrote a book, Why Ch uh, Catholics Don't Give, uh, great book, also did some follow-up research just immediately after the, the scandals broke in the early 2000s. 
and he found that the giving um, has decreased in places where uh, there was a significant abuse situation happening. But overall, there was not a huge impact. That has certainly changed. There's a, there's a Pew Research that came out recently that said something like uh, 20, 25, 26% of Catholics are giving less. Um, and it basically boils down to that credibility piece. I think there's an expectation that as soon as you find out about something, you got to do something about it. And here we are 20 years into it, and we're still struggling with it. Um, and again, um, it's, it's not like the church can turn the page overnight and, and get everything done, but, but I think it, is, um, it has uh, caused lots of problems and, and probably will continue to. I guess on a bright side, what I want to want to say is that going back to Charles Zeke's research, when he when he found out, yes, the initially the money went down in places where they were directly impacted by the scandal. It was one of those congressman phenomena. Everybody agrees Congress is horrible, but I love my congressman. So if the abuse didn't touch your particular area, maybe in the early stages it was viewed as well. That's a problem that other dioceses. Unfortunately, we've gotten to the point where people are now coming to the conclusion this is a huge problem that's endemic, and the, the church is responding to it. Um, the positive takeaway is that giving is related to engagement. Uh, this was shown by Andrew Greeley going back to his research in the 1960s and through the 80s, and that's where the huge drop in, in Catholic giving initially happened. Um, and, and so I think the challenge for us is transparency, uh, honesty in all matters of church. Uh, and of course, this touches directly on operational vi vitality. Um, when pastors, parishioners, when everybody understands the finance of the school and the parish, they're in a better position to understand what is best for us to live that mission. And anytime there's lack of transparency, secrecy, you're going to be open to problems. Um, so it, it has been a, a problem. I think it will continue to be a problem in terms of credibility, and we need to shore that up. We, the church, everyone. And it has to do with accountability, transparency. Uh, I, I do want to report on a positive side. I'm on the, the board of directors for Kenrick Glennon Seminary. Wonderful seminary. Uh, I can say that the, the new norms coming out of the, the Vatican in terms of the training of priests, the focus on, on creating happy, healthy men willing to serve the church. And that's a good thing. That, that is a noticeable change uh, from maybe the, the prescriptions and the norms of training priests in the past. So I, I can say firsthand, um, the training has changed. There's a propedeutic year now in seminary training where guys before they're ordained are spending a full year out in the field serving in parishes to find out what it's really like. Uh, so I think there's some, some uh, exciting futures. It has had a tremendous impact. Think about all the, the things we could have done with an additional $4 billion. Uh, imagine what we could have done if all these lives weren't damaged and the credibility weren't damaged. Um, but it is what it is, and, and now we need to, uh, to move forward. John, when you talk about transparency, I think that's really key. I don't know the number of times where parents have said when their school closure is announced that they didn't know there was financial problems. Nobody told them, and they felt cheated of the opportunity to try to save their school. So um, I, for those listeners out there who, who are wondering, that is so important. Tell the people the truth. I know you're always worried that if you tell them the truth, they'll run away because they'll think that you will close. But not telling them the truth has not helped you. That's absolutely right. And when people fundamentally understand what's going on, ultimately what you're doing is you're inviting them into uh, the process and inviting them to really own 
the mission of Catholic education, and that's a wonderful thing. It, it's what it should be. Uh, you know, sacramentally, um, uh, marriage contains a promise to educate the children. The sacrament of baptism uh, in, contains the, the, the challenge, the admonition to educate the children uh, in the faith. So that is a sacred parental responsibility. So to hide data, to hide information from parents and parishioners is honestly contrary to the sacraments. I, I agree. And it's it's the right thing to do. Let's just go back to it's the right Absolutely. thing to do. You know, very basic. So, so um, John, I like to ask all of our guests this question. What's the best lesson you've ever learned? <laughs> wow. Um, well, maybe it's, uh, it's through age or wisdom or whatever. But I think when I first got into um, Catholic school administration, I, I, I maybe had a lot of pride and, and arrogance. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm smart enough. I'm, I'm hardworking enough to solve any problem. And I've, I've come to this, uh, this lesson that leadership is not about what I do. It's about what we accomplish through and with others. Um, and I guess reflecting on the life of Jesus, um, God could have brought about salvation any way he, he darn well wanted to. Um, but he chose to become a man, uh, human, uh, to build capacity of the apostles, to establish the church, Matthew 16, 18, and then send them out. So even though he was the Messiah, he chose to leverage others uh, to carry out that work, even to this day, as the church stands with us here today, being Christ to others. So I guess that's the, the big lesson I learned. Um, leadership is not about me. It's not what I do, but it's about what we accomplish through and with others together. I think that's a very solid lesson to have learned. And um, I do, I have done a talk in my life on distributed leadership. And I always say Jesus was the first leader of leader dis, um, distributed leadership because he definitely did that. And um, I think that we need to trust others to help us in, in this work and for us to help them in their work. Um, all of us working together, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, John, what's the best lesson you ever taught? You're a teacher. What's the best lesson you ever taught? I, I think it's kind of the same thing. Um, and and uh, I think we learn best from our own mistakes. And then my hope as a teacher is to pass on my mistakes to my students so that they don't make the same one. So honestly, um, it's the same lesson I pass on to my students. And that is we're, we're called to be prophets, not messiahs. Uh, we had one messiah. He died for all of us 2,000 years ago. But by our baptism, we're baptized priest, prophet, and king. We're not baptized messiahs. So you got to let go of the messiah complex, and you're called to be a prophet, um, to basically empower others, as, as you put it, uh, distributed, just, uh, distributed leadership. If you take a look at the whole Gospel of Matthew, the whole arc is about Jesus coming, forming the disciples, establishing the church. The very next thing he does is he's go, going to Jerusalem to, to die. Um, so that the apostles can carry on that work. So I guess uh, the biggest lesson I have is also the lesson that I try to pass on to my students. I, I like that. And that, that quote about the Messiah is in the book. So um, if, you yes. Want, yes, if, you want, if you want a good book to read on operational vitality, I really do recommend this. This is the first in the monograph series from NCA about the national standards. And um, it is called Operational Vitality, a source book for practitioners. And it's based on standard 10 of the national standards of benchmarks at national oh. standards and benchmarks. Yeah, Kathy, if I can just add something. Um, sure. I, I think the real value of the book is not necessarily the stuff that I put in. I mean, I'd love to think that, oh, yeah, I've got some brilliant stuff in there and great data and the whole bit. But really, honestly, I think the value of the book is as a lever. 
uh, because we have so many administrators who feel all alone fighting the, the demons, the dragons every day, and also pastors and the whole bit. I think this is a lever for having the conversation with parents, for school board members, for everybody to have a local discussion about where we are in terms of operational vitality, what are the levers that are going on within our school, and what ought we do moving forward. Um, so thank you for, for mentioning you know, the book and, and you thought it was valuable. I honestly think its greatest value is the conversations that ensue as a result of reading it and sharing it with others. I agree. I think it's the collaboration that can happen because of this book. And and, uh, and I meant it when I said I think the CFOs of our diocese should read it um, because I think it would help give them a better understanding of what, what local schools are thinking about. Um, it's really hard sometimes for a principal to go in and talk to somebody who has an MBA or, you know, a CPA degree in accounting, whatever, because they know that's not their expertise. Um, and I think this book will give them the language that they need and really start the conversations and just new ways of thinking about things if you haven't thought about it in a, the really broadest sense. Um, um, I started out as a business major. That did not last very long because I, like you, um, I, in my heart, I'm a teacher. I always have been, not probably always will be, hope I will always be. And um, so it, it is very important that we keep learning, keep modeling that lifelong learning and keep carrying on for the good of our church. So John, thank you. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for working with NCA on it. And um, I really want to thank you too for being a great disciple because um, you live what you, you preach and that's really important to every all of us and especially to our church. So thank you for that. I want well, thank to, you, Kathy. You are more than welcome, my friend. So I want to ask everyone to um, say a little prayer for our schools at the end of this, as you finish listening to this podcast. And I want to thank John James, our guest, and thank you for listening. Join NCA's Laura McDonald and Jessica Roberts on a virtual trip to classrooms across the country. Beginning in September, our podcast will welcome Catholic educators to have conversations about teaching in Catholic schools. We will discuss teaching strategies, tips and tricks, lesson ideas, and so much more. We hope you will join us starting in September. Subscribe and be sure to tell a friend.